The Culture Guy Podcast. With your host, Christian, also known as The Culture Guy. Finally, a new episode after a longer pause. And again, you might realize, those of you who have been faithful to this program, there is a new music to start out this episode. This has to do with our guest. I'll tell you a little bit about him in a second. And those of you who follow me on social media, you might recognize this tune because it's playing under the videos that I've been posting as the culture moment. Well, enough of that for now. Today, I am, first of all, welcoming all of you back that have been waiting for a new episode. It's taken me a bit. I've been traveling over the summer, mostly for business, a little bit for pleasure as well. And I have had a few very interesting conversations that I am excited to include in this podcast. One of them is with a friend, longtime uh, business associate or business connection, I'd rather say. And for those of you who haven't met me personally and haven't heard me share this story, before I started my company, The Culture Mastery, and before I moved to the United States, I worked for a long, long time in the music industry. And today's guest is a friend or a contact from back in those days. We go back quite a bit. In fact, Martin is the person, the first person who actually offered me a job at a record company. I did not take him up on this offer somehow it didn't pan out and maybe it was for the best both for his record company and for my career and um, yeah he's, he's got a very interesting story he's a uh, friend from Austria German-speaking country and he has crossed cultures quite a bit which he will share with us in a moment what you should know before we go into that conversation is how you find us online those of you who or maybe new to this podcast because it was recommended to you or because, well, somebody forwarded it to you and said, hey, you got to listen to this. You find us online at theculturemastery.com. That is one word, no hyphens or dots or anything else in between, theculturemastery.com. And more about that later after we talk with Martin. Today, I'm here with Martin Brehm or Marty Brehm or Martin from originally from Austria and now back in Austria. Martin, welcome to the Culture Guy podcast. Thanks for making Thank time for me. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, it's a pleasure. We've, we've met a long, long time ago. Most of my audience here probably doesn't know that I used to work in the music industry many, many moons ago. And fun fact is that you were the first record label executive to ever offer me a job. And I don't know, for some reason I turned it down and, and now we're still talking. <laughs> oh yeah, well, that was a long time ago, right? Two yeah. decades, three decades, I don't know. Uh, thanks for dating me, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. And I look much younger. Um, so with that being said, Marty, I'm, I'm happy to have you on because um, 
Martin is from Austria, from outside of Vienna, and he's lived across the globe as a music business professional. And um, I'm happy to pick his brain and share his experience with you guys, what it was like to be a small town Austrian boy going into the big world. Marty, you've lived, uh, do you go by Martin or Marty? What do, what do the English uh, speakers call you? Marty is um, actually quite um, negatively connotated uh, because of uh, the horror kind of um, experiences. I, uh, horror, but the, the troubled experiences I had as a musician mm -hmm. in my very early um, and therefore, I would, uh, I would appreciate if you would not call me Martin. <laughs> and we will stop that right away. Um, Thank you. Your, your early music career, um, you shared with me earlier. You, you left your parents' home, your childhood home, at the at the tender age of ten to go to a Benedictine monastery to join their boys' choir, right? And then you represented mm -hmm. your country on on the global scale. Tell us about that. Well, it started out really like a fascination for music. I couldn't really uh, understand what happened to me, but music just uh, from from day one just really grabbed me. And so I, I started to sing uh, at this uh, classical Catholic um, boys choir, and that was quite a professional outfit. So there were tours and all that. So at the age of 10, uh, still a soprano, of course, uh, I joined this uh, choir and uh, we had classical training every day and all that. So that was beautiful and nice. Um, but then later on, of course, when the voice broke, um, I left that situation there and uh, uh, desperately wanted to become a rock and roll guy. So I got a guitar, classic story, you know, grew my hair and started a band. and. They were called sauerkraut, actually. Which <laughs> and awesome. They did some uh, kind of nasty, typical mid-70s. We tried to be bad company, but it wouldn't really work because my mm. voice, of course, was more like angelic rather than uh, a Paul Rogers type of rusty rhythm and blues. And you can't get the rhythm and blues if you're out of uh, lower Austria um, that easily. That mm. only came a little. But uh, it just it just really got me into this whole mood of music and the fascination of music. And later on, of course, uh, I switched over after that uh, singing experience into being a journalist. And after journalists joining the kind of record company world as a music executive, so I, I had my share, my fair share of <laughs> of uh, the music industry, so to speak. So traumatic or not, but I, I just want to close the loop for um, for our audience. So you did represent your home country of Austria at the Eurovision Song Contest in the early 80s. And oh, yeah. was that something that let you decide that maybe performing is not what you want to do? You want to be the person helping those who perform to, to get better? Was that a deciding moment for you? I... Uh, <laughs> I think I ticked the box. You know, I, I did more than a thousand gigs in my life when I was 20. You know, that, that, that was all behind me and it, it didn't thrill me at all anymore. It was just also a, quite a, a, a problematic experience, that whole mm -hmm. uh, song. 
I don't know whoever whoever understands what the Eurovision Song Contest is understands it's a big kind of uh, unpredictable theater of grand drama uh, that of course in early age you would connect or identify yourself with um, and uh, that's of course the, the the wrong route to go mm. uh, and was not a really pleasant experience for me but I learned a lot about you know it is your responsibility and it is your kind of your game if you if you join the game then you have to play the game and you can't right. just play words and say well oh that was unfair that was unfair no that was part of the deal mm. well a box ticked and you moved on to to the music business as as your as your life journey and when we met in the mid 90s you were a senior executive for a major record label based in both london and frankfurt germany what was it like to be the austrian living in in germany i mean there there are so many cliches around the two german speaking nations uh, how they are alike and how they're not and there are so many stereotypes on both sides how did you experience it being still in your in your own language however in a slightly different culture there's this great saying by i think it was karl Kraus who said uh, you know austrians and germans are separated by the same language Kind of like George Bernard Shaw says about the British and the Americans, right? Oh, right. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's pretty much hits, hits the nail on the head. Um, well, it is, I think, quite evident that the German type of um, facing a, a, a communication um, merely by the sound of the language is a different one than the Austrian way. We are a bit further down south. We are a bit further sort of an interim stage between uh, Germany coming from the northern part of Hamburg and then you go down and you go to, to the Bavarian side and then you, you jump over the wonderful Alps and then suddenly you are in Italy. Suddenly mm. you are in like a much more Mediterranean kind of hang um, and slang as well. So. Um, there were people who were saying that uh, we Austrians represent the Jamaicans of Europe. Um, you know, we are a bit further in the kind of idea of the flow. It is no wonder that um, we had Freud and we had Sheila and Klimt and all these people. Mm. Um, you know, it's a bit more uh, digging deeper into um, something that is uh what we would say what we could call in the music business the groove right and yaman yaman and <laughs> facing facing the germans was an interesting phenomenon to see the accurateness and the uh tight schedules and the mm -hmm. the, the idea of um mechanics and precision um is is something that we rather austrians we austrians like to yes we can adapt to that but um we not necessarily strive to be as precise and as uh, correct as mm. the germans but the combination of the two is a good thing to have is a good good dance that um 
leads you to better results, I guess. So would you agree with um, the Austro-German actor, well-known Oscar-decorated um, actor, Christoph Waltz, who once said when he was asked on one of the American talk shows how he would describe the difference between Germans and Austrians, he said, Austrians have a sense of humor. And he, that's, <laughs> that's where he left it. He put the full stop behind that statement. Is, is, is that how you would, would experience it too? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think one could definitely say that the approach, and I learned that when I was a journalist and wrote the irony, loaden first pages of uh, the Music Express Sounds magazine, mm. where yeah. a, a sort of approach to irony is something that is rather rare on the northern side of our border. So, so Germans have a harder time laughing about themselves than Austrians do then? A hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, th that's also been my experience. And um, for those of you who are familiar with the German-speaking world, I come from the southeastern part of Germany, uh, Bavaria. And our dialect is closer to that of Austria than it is to that of Berlin, Hamburg, or or Düsseldorf. So mm -hmm. um, I, I think I've, I grew up between those two, two worlds a little bit, and I can relate. Now, you also recently just returned from a multi-year stint to the U.S. West Coast. You were working for your employer, for your company in Southern California. How, how was that change? Funny, interesting, because, <laughs> you know, when you wake up, when you, when you grow up in the post-war Wirtschaftswunder scenario, you have this idea in your head of God's own country and Elvis and, you know, this Bob Dylan and Woodstock and, and then all the wonderful um, stuff that has been brought forward by uh, people that were hanging out at the Esalen Institute in Northern California, all this Tower of Physics, Fritjof Capra, uh, Aldous Huxley, all these people. Uh, so the, the, the idea of the free, the idea of the you go there and it's, uh, ev you can do everything you want, right? It's mm -hmm. like in, prevalent in your thinking. So then you go there and you suddenly understand, especially in a spot like uh, Santa Monica and Venice, where I mostly hang out uh, for the last five years, um, you see this obscene wealth and you see this even more obscene poverty. Mm -hmm. um, the, the absolute crazy, um, you know, drifting away of the two uh, extremes there. Um, that is rather shocking first. Right? It kind of makes me think of uh, Sting when he uh, went to India and was uh, writing the song Driven to Tears because he couldn't, he couldn't really fathom the, uh, the amount of poverty that he was seeing there. You would go to a trendy place in Venice, Giusta, uh, and have breakfast, and then you would drive out, out, of, out of the parking lot, and there would be like the homeless people there. Um, really, and you think like, why on earth could that even be? Then looking at how um, you know, the healthcare system works in the US, you, you really get a reality check in terms of, ah, this is how, how hardcore capitalism looks like, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is harsh. It is a harsh reality. But, I mean, it's a land of extremes, yes. And you, you meet amazing people 
and you meet a lot of people that um, sort of fulfill that <laughs> wonderful uh, word that has once been said, like LA is 120 miles wide and two inch deep. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> sort of on the surface and in order to get deeper and dig deeper and really connect with people, um, like really connect with people and not um, just on the surface and just of hi, it's wonderful and it's great and it's uh, eternal bliss, you know, typical California eternal bliss. Uh, it takes a while and it, it is actually pretty damn hard for uh, some what, deeper, what, deeper human connect. Would it be fair to say then that your expectation of what the United States would be like to, I mean, obviously you've been there before as, as a visitor or as a tourist, but now you, you, you were bound to live there for several years. So could it be that you got a reality check on the expectations you had going into that country? And when you, you said, yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Yes. Uh, that's what I try to express is like you, you, you grow up with this, idealized um, thinking of what this is and especially mm. California. Is, I mean, if, you brought, if you've been brought up with music, if, you, if music is uh, something that really drives you and, and you hear California dreaming or you go to San Francisco and you wear some flowers in your hair, it is all this kind of uh, great destination that a dream comes true then you go there and you don't you don't see that the dream comes true it's a reality check right, right. you just realize what um, the reality looks like and of course the, the the current political situation and where it just went it's just not Trump it's just the the end point of uh, something that has been developed uh, quite uh, consistently over the last 20 years yeah uh, it doesn't doesn't help either, you know, to put it back to the sort of the, the wonderful idealized state. Well, and, and I think for us, Generation Xers who grew up in the 70s and 80s with the idea, and I have to specify Generation Xers who grew up in Central Europe, because you, you said the word Wirtschaftswunder. Um, so for those of you who are not familiar with what that means, um, the, the post-World War II generation uh, that was Martin's and my parent generation, they grew up in a time of uh, need and, 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 and scarcity. However, uh, Martin's, Martin's and my generation, we had the pleasure of growing up in, in abundance, which was often related to Anglo-Saxon influence in the German-speaking world because America was the big brother that helped um, our countries back on their feet after World War II, and, and we, we regained economic strength and grew up as well as young kids and teenagers highly influenced by by American and British pop culture and and that shaped our image of what the United States would be like and and you go there as an adult and the reality doesn't always uh, line up with with the image that we had in our minds so ha having that uh, readjusted so to say is sometimes a painful or an, an unexpected process to say the least now very 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 Nicely put. <laughs> thanks. That's what I get paid for. <laughs> so, and, and thanks, by the way, for making me a Gen Xer because I'm actually a, a, a very late baby boomer. 
You you still fall into that bracket? I thought you you and I were the kind of oh well. No, no. I'm just an old dude. I'm an old dude. Just just take it as a compliment. It, it, it'll be all right. <laughs> so so 120 miles wide, two inches deep. So that's the LA you experienced, and the perception of superficiality. Did that ever change throughout those five years that you lived there? Did you ever? Managed to dig deeper with certain individuals, and if so, how did you do that? Yeah, well, uh, perseverance. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, plus, um, of course, because it is such a vast repository of talent uh, that is running around in all sorts of the arts uh, itself, not just music, but of course, film uh, and um, art in itself. Um, Plus, I found the, 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 the best ever Jungian uh, analyst um, I could have ever imagined uh, in uh, Hollywood, interestingly hmm. enough. He brought me on an absolute uh, wonderful and still thriving um, path of um, reading C.G. Jung and reading all the kind of uh, universe around him um, and digging deeper. Uh, so you find both. Yes, you have an, 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 a vast amount of people who just uh, thrive on glamour. And it's all about how it looks like, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's all about beauty. It's all about beauty that if you then dig deeper, sometimes it ends up to be quite empty or shallow, right? And then there's other people who really try to... Uh, to find the truth in why we're here and what is our kind of purpose in life. And there is a, a, a whole kind of offering of uh, wisdom, um, let alone the, the yoga madness that is going on there. Uh, there's so much self-improvement uh, um, attempts there too uh, that makes it quite interesting. It's ambivalent, you know, you have both yeah. sides. Yeah, so, so you, would it be fair to say that you rediscovered a path to your own spirituality while you were there? Or was that a, something that you had already embarked on before you went to California? Well, uh, one of my first interviews I did uh, in the 80s when I worked for Music Express was with um, Rick Springfield, of mm. all people. Mm -hmm. So... And he had released an album called Dao. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea. I mean, small country boy, right, from uh, Austria, working for the uh, Music Express in Munich. Um, so I, I started to dig in, and I started to read the Dao of Physics by Fritjof Capra. And I started to read Alan Watts and listen to Alan Watts and just went in there. And, and, and then, I, of course, when I landed in... Um, in California, the first, one of the first things that I had to do is like uh, A, buy a convertible and B, drive up highway number one to Esalen uh, to the Institute and just <laughs> hang out there where even the, the morphic resonance of Robert Sheldrake and his disciples uh, would just be available for me and prepared for me to suck in just by being at this wonderful uh, magical space. Um, Yes, I can totally um, see, and that journey, of course, is not over, no matter where you are in, in the world, because it's uh, ultimately a journey to the inside anyways. Mm -hmm. um, but 
something that I'm, I'm really interested in, in how to, um, you know, bring more of your unconscious into the consciousness. I think that's ultimately what we should do as human people, as, human, as humans, um, we should um, create scenarios to understand our, ourselves better, because if we do that, uh, we'd probably be better off in the world in, uh, in general. Now, you, you used a term that I found interesting because it's so very true for California and, and many other parts of the United States. You said the, the term self-improvement that you noticed is going on um, all around you in, in the U.S. I noticed that myself as well. And, and as, as a German myself coming to the U.S., I was reluctant to, at first, to, to tip my toe into that world. And when I finally did, it... it opened up new new perspectives for me that uh, until then were, were closed off to me. And I'm still a traveler between cultures, or I still have family in, in the German-speaking world. And whenever I bring up those experiences that I've had uh, around self-improvement or uh, mindfulness or the journey to ourselves, I am just greeted with... Uh, blank stares and, and, and wrinkling foreheads and confusion. So do you, do you have the same experience that your, your uh, path of, may I call it enlightenment, that, that you, you embarked on is not always uh, met with the same kind of openness when you're now back in, in Austria? No, I think that, this, that there is a longing in everyone. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter where you are, but you might be busy uh, with stuff that uh, prevents you from going deeper. So therefore, um, and, and ultimately, it's so um, not really easy to put in words because how, how do you describe a moment when you are in a state of meditation and you 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 arrive at that point that is everything and nothing right you you just arrive at what you could call the tao although i mean whatever you can the tao that you talk about is not the tao right so it is kind of unspeakable what is happening there right. but to help other people to get insight into why they are, for instance, so addicted to the, the, the vertical, right? Um, the vertical meaning dealing with the outside world, identifying with the outside world, identifying with a signal that comes from uh, via your senses from the outside world as some sort of confirmation or not confirmation for your own behavior. So you project and you do all this. Uh, to, to just redirect that idea into a hey bring it into your into your um your vertical right mm -hmm. just get away from the horizontal stuff and bring it in your vertical and see what is happening when you are interacting with the outside world with your own kind of resonating system right what what is going on in you that makes you angry about this guy who's in front of you and he's um bullying you or whatever. What mm. is it inside? How can you take that in you and how can you take responsibility for your own reactions? That is something that I feel very, very strongly um, 
that you can talk to anyone about that. Yeah. Um, they might look at you like, oh God, want to be esoteric. That's the label that's easily thrown around in, in, in the German-speaking world, esoteric. And, and that's yeah. Oh, like, we, we lost him. We lost him to the... To the the tree huggers and the, 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 the spiritualists, right. Um, yeah. and, 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 and yes, I mean, that, that could be a fair assessment for some people. I, I choose to view it a little bit differently, and especially with, with my involvement with neuro-linguistic programming, um, also started by two Californians, Grinder and Bandler. For those of you who are interested, check out NLP Atlanta. That's our NLP center here in, in the city. Um, you, you can, if you want to, you can con combine your vertical with, with the inside, which would bring me to your current situation, Martin. You've been working for a, a very um, well-known consumer brand in their, uh, or not on the front line, in the consumer line of, of that uh, company, but you're in the music media world for a company called Red Bull. Many of you may be familiar with it. There's um, there's a soda that will give you wings if you drink it responsibly. I hear. Um, so literally, <laughs> no, of course. So so how in in just a nutshell for those of you, of our audience who may not be familiar with music industry terminology and what you guys do, but how do you give wings to music creatives and how does your um, work for such a well-known consumer brand um, how, how do you align that with your well with your insight well it, it really combined everything I know about media everything I know about being a musician everything I know about being a record company executive or sometimes even in publishing uh, the the offering that was on the table in 2012 was so um, tempting for me because I could combine everything I learned in my life into this thing and build something within Rebel Media House that would help both sides and create a, a really a win-win situation here. On one hand, there was this kind of media company in the making trying to create content uh, with that uh, brand promise, but also this uh, this whole attitude of that brand of you know you, you might be familiar with all the kind of sports active sports uh, action sports and mm -hmm. uh, this kind of aspirational uh, you remember Mr. Baumgartner jumping from outer space you know this whole kind of yes we can do better we can do more we can do we can have wings, right? So that's the, 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 the idea that really got me into it of here's a company um, that needs music every day as a media company. At the same time, it is sort of um, even shied away from dealing with music because it's so complicated. Copyright, oh my God, music copyright. What a convoluted space mm. of right so liability issues etc so for me it was a perfect way to come in and say well okay listen guys what we need to do is build technology that serves our decentralized company with perfect tools and easy to use tools at the same time let's build into this technology stuff uh, that 
would make it easier for the musicians to actually get fairly remunerated mm -hmm. and even recognized in, the, in, a, in a certain uh, way, um, because usually that would not happen, right? So that was the, the, the principal thought in 2012 when I uh, joined in Austria. Um, we built it here over the two or three years. Um, we built the music portfolio here in Salzburg. And then it was clear that if we want to expand, if we really mean it, I would need to be in the in the town of Hans Zimmer and, and Junkie XL and all these people who are <laughs> professionally um, doing scores in a quality that is, well, uh, the standard, the go-to, the state of the art. So I moved over in 2015 to the U.S., built the... Uh, music portfolio in uh, Los Angeles as well. Um, and now I made myself redundant, what every manager should do. Uh, so I built my, my, my team there. Now I'm able to just um, go back to my original place, but because this is the place where the technology side um, in Austria here at headquarters um, is built. So it made more sense for me now to be back in, in Salzburg. Um, I think the, 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 the great opportunity we have at this weird paradigm change that happened or happened within the last 10, 15 years in the music industry. Um, I left uh, Columbia Records in 2001, which was the height of the Napster um, sort of controversy back then. And from then on, 2001 on, it really was a downplay uh, because streaming, uh, would just fundamentally change the business model. And mm. when I started to be um, back, when I, coming, when I came back to music uh, at the end of the zero years in 2009, you might remember the Berlin Popcom um, situation. I was asked to join this all together now association to sort of create new business models around um, the fact that you need to embrace the internet. You can't just, uh, condemn it all the time and, and uh, that was a, a fact of life and now look what happened right now you see so, so you you've seen the music industry at its height you've seen it at it, it in its heyday when um the advent of the cd as a carrier um basically brought a huge golden platinum windfall for the industry and you you witnessed its decline through technological disruption and now you're part of rebuilding it in a in a much more uh, can I say fair way that compensates multiple stakeholders in, in the that's, creative that's, process yeah that's, that's my really one one of my my main intentions here is to build a system that is absolutely royalty fair meaning a composer who, who put a piece of work together and made it happen that it's available for a video or um, a filmmaker to use, he should be uh, remunerated on the basis um, of the fact that he was played out and in the digital environment, you can actually guarantee um, absolute transparency there. Yes. Well, that is not the way it's done right now. 
with all your enlightenment and with all your life and professional experience of traveling around the world for work, um, what, what's the what's one of the nuggets? What's one of the pieces of advice you would give people who are about to embark on that journey of becoming a global professional, a global citizen? What, what is the one quality that served you best when you went from one culture into another? Listen. Mm. Just listen and assimilate. I mean, that might be something that, that is quite a, uh, a talent for uh, Austrians. We, we are assimilationsbereit. You're willing to you, you're, you're willing to adjust. Adjust, exactly. Um, that also has downsides because you might um, you know, lose your own identity on the way if you're not careful. So you have to be careful there. But I think if you go into a new situation and I mean, it's, it's, it's really not a lot of um, wisdom there. I think that's pretty commonplace. But if you are able to just listen, you're able to just down turn your own instincts and just give the vis-a-vis um, -vis the opportunity to express themselves and come into the situation first then you understand so much more uh, without you know really sort of compromising your own position you just you just listen you just wait you just be patient mm -hmm. um, I think that that served me always the best well, and you said it might be obvious. Um, you'd be surprised in, in my in my work, and I've done this this uh, cultural training and coaching work for the better half, of, well, for more than a decade now. Um, I keep coming across people who are still learning how to do that, and who do you, do you think do you think that happens out of insecurity? I think there's a variety of reasons why people are, are not good listeners. Um, sometimes it, 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 it may be a part of their professional background. I've done a lot of work in the automotive industry and there's, there's three, four countries in the world that are strong in terms of automotive. That's the US, that's Germany, that's Japan, and to a certain extent, France and Italy as well. And when you're dealing with German automotive engineers, there's a sense of um, superiority that involves <laughs> once in a while. I have a, I've, a, I've coined a term for it. It's called the German engineering arrogance. It's um, it's a it's a a trait that's not very endearing and not very helpful when when trying to work well in in the uh, cultural context. I'm not sure whether this is a particularly German. Problem, although it might uh, it might uh, amplify, um, but oh. isn't it an engineering thing in particular? The way of thinking of yes. um, yeah. I am I am there to uh, have a problem, and I am there to create a solution, and the solution is absolute. I agree. So there, there's a mixture. It's 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 part of the the uh, there, there's the cultural background, and then there's the professional culture that sometimes comes with it. One amplifies the other, and in the, that's why I, I'm jokingly calling it the, the German engineering arrogance. Obviously, there's other arrogant engineers in the world as well, but Germans have a some some Germans still have this sense of um, we know better, and you will buy it because we built it. 
and it's good yeah. for you. And yeah. I learned quickly living in the United States that um, the market is dominated by the demand. And if the consumer says, I want this, then that's what they'll get. And if the consumer doesn't want it, they won't buy, um, which mm -hmm. in, in the middle central European markets, is, it's not quite that way. There is still kind of a supply driven uh, marketplace where, where you have a smaller selection of products and uh, the the manufacturers tell the, the the consumers this is what we built for you and we're the best to build this and we tell you this is the best possible product so you will god damn it you will love it and you will buy it no questions asked so that the, the consumer in in the anglo-saxon markets has a lot more power and influence than it does in in, in central europe in my experience yeah they would only exercise it yeah, <laughs> I agree. In the right way. <laughs> Martin, it was lovely having you on. Despite our sometimes difficult technological hiccups that we had in the beginning before we hit record, stuff that you, dear audience, will never hear because it was just too horrible, but we managed to work through it because we are enlightened, <laughs> at least to a certain degree. Um, I wish. Oh yeah, don't we all? Now, how do people get in touch with you um, after after listening to this and they think, well, maybe this is the guy I need to talk to when it comes to my um, intellectual musical properties. So is it best to go through LinkedIn or do you want me to post your email address? What's the best way for people after they listen to this to get a hold of you? I think LinkedIn is fine. Okay, so then watch out, folks. Check the show notes of this episode. You will find the cliff notes of our conversation and all the proper links that will lead you to Martin Brame. And again, thank you, Martin. Thank you for, for taking time. Best of luck to you um, in, in your new old home in Salzburg, the birthplace of Mozart and everything that's awesome about Austrian culture. And mostly... Even more than Mozart, Stefan Zweig. There we go. See, I learned something. <laughs> and never, and let, let this be a guide to all my listeners out there, never challenge an Austrian on culture because <laughs> they grow up with us stuff. They know their shit. Oh, excuse my French. All right. Oh, you can challenge me beautifully in culture. I would, I would only know like probably an eighth of what I want to know. Oh, well, that's but more I than have, I do. I hope I have time left to, to dig deeper and understand better what's going on in this world. Even, even though you're a late baby boomer. No, we, we established <laughs> that you're not. All right, Martin, thank you very much. Um, good you. luck with, with everything in Salzburg. And this was the Culture Guy podcast live from Austria. Well, there you have it. A music executive who grew up deeply deeply, deeply drenched in Central European culture and was confronted with the, well, the young version of culture across the big Atlantic, all over to the Pacific coast, 120 miles wide and two inches deep. How do you deal with that if you grow up in a world that values depth, philosophical concepts, Jungian philosophy, uh, Cartesian logic and dialectic approach. Yes, I know what I'm talking about because that's the humanistic environment that I grew up in as well. And I am often still challenged with the I don't give a rat's ass approach of the young world, of the new world that 
I have been living in for so many years. Martin Brehm, Austrian by passport, a world citizen by choice, back in Salzburg. It was lovely to have him on. If transitioning between cultures, if adjusting to a new quote-unquote normal is a challenge for you or somebody that you know well, send them our way. Let's have that conversation. You find us online, on Facebook, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, and mainly on our website, theculturemastery.com, where you also find the show notes to this episode. And get in touch with me. Send us an email, send me a direct message, tweet at me, whatever you do online. Um, and share this episode if you found this valuable which i certainly hope you do um, post a link give it a comment either on the show note website or share it online and make sure that people find it that will be lovely and give us a recommendation ideally five stars of course so enough with the tooting my horn this is the german trying to be as american as he can be um, you get the drift i would really love for you to help us get the word out and if culture has been or is a challenge for you, we're here for you. We're here to help. Let's get in touch. Let's have that conversation. This was one of the more longer episodes after a long break. So thank you. You're welcome. And I'll talk to you next time with, well, I got a few guests already in the pipeline. So you better stay put. The Culture Guys out. Mic drop for now. And talk to you later. Thank you.